Episode 45, Martin Luther and the Reformation. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. There are occasionally in the history of the world those singular moments, an instant in time where everything changes. One single action, one quick moment, and then everything after that is altered. The course of history is changed. Caesar crossing the Rubicon. The guy in the crow's nest of the Santa Maria shouting, Tierra! Land. The first gunshot at the Battle of Lexington. The Archduke of Austria-Hungary being assassinated. John and Paul meeting for the first time in Liverpool. Those kind of moments that happen all the time, and in the moment they seemed like small, normal, everyday things, but then later, everyone looks back and realizes, wow, that was a really significant moment. This episode, we're looking at one of those moments. A small act of rebellion, a simple statement that things needed to be talked about that led to a long chain of really significant changes that literally changed the world. Obviously, I'm talking about Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door in Wittenberg. We'll come back to that moment in a bit, but before we do, I want to talk a bit about what was going on in Europe that set the stage for the moment. Because in a way, the bonfire had already been built and the lighter fluid poured all over it before Luther brought the match and lit it. Things were ready to change and Luther's action was the catalyst. Luther's action, as we shall see, was the start of a movement that became the Reformation, which was a reaction to the things that people were already seeing to be wrong with the church of that day. So in one way, the Reformation was about making changes to some corrupt practices of the church, but in the end, it was much more important than just that. One of the most important changes that we're going to see was the movement of smaller groups separating themselves from the central control of Rome and saying, hey, we aren't governed by Rome or by any central authority. We are governing ourselves, according to the Bible. The Renaissance had brought about an explosion of classical literature being studied all across Europe, and this included reading scripture in the original languages. Many northern scholars came to see what they considered to be errors in the Roman Catholic Church of the day, and some of these early reformers initially sought to bring reform into the church. Their original idea was to bring change from within and change the existing church. That's why they're called reformers and why the movement is called the Reformation, even though it ended up being more of a revolution and the start of a bunch of people leaving the Roman church instead of reforming it. Now, much of this growing scholarship and discussion centered around the practices and doctrines of the church of the day. Scholars in Northern Europe were more willing and able to go back and study the original scriptures in Greek and Hebrew as these originals became more available, in part because of the printing press. And because they were in the North, Northern scholars like Tyndale, Wycliffe, and Huss, because they were farther from Rome, they felt more freedom to criticize what they saw as unbiblical practices and doctrines. And once the printing press came along, their opinions were spread more quickly and more widely than had been possible before. One of the more important doctrines of the church that Northern scholars disagreed with 
was the church's doctrine that its own official statements were just as important and just as authoritative as what was written in the Bible. In other words, anything that the church or the Pope said, officially at least, ought to be taken as having as much authority as the Bible itself did. A lot of people disagreed with this. Many of these doctrines and church pronouncements were in direct contradiction to what was actually said in the Bible, in the scriptures. For example, the church had authorized the practice of selling indulgences, which I've mentioned in other episodes. A person could buy, for a substantial sum of money, a piece of paper from the officially designated indulgence seller, which said that all of their sins were forgiven and that they were guaranteed to go to heaven, or at least to be able to get out of purgatory faster. You could even buy someone else out of purgatory, even if they had already died. The sale of indulgences made a lot of money for the church, and so the church found ways to justify the practice and often made official pronouncements that supported the indulgences and their sale. Some of the scholars of Northern Europe began to say openly that the practice of indulgences was anti-biblical and wrong. And as I said, most of them really just wanted to change the church or to reform it. But as we're going to see, the church really didn't want to do that. The church didn't want to change. And this brings us back to Martin Luther. I mentioned a couple episodes ago in the episode on Gutenberg, the TV channel A&E did a countdown back in 1999, just before the new millennium began, and it counted down the most important people of the last 1,000 years. So that's the period from A.D. 1000 to A.D. 1999. They surveyed a bunch of history experts and professors to come up with a list that's kind of an interesting list, in fact, and it's still out there on the internet somewhere. Coming in at the number two most important person of that millennium is Martin Luther. And Gutenberg was number one. I find this incredibly interesting, in part because neither of them was really all that important in their lifetime, at least not at the time when they had their big moments. Gutenberg was an obscure inventor, and he never really succeeded financially with his printing press, but his invention definitely changed the world. And I think it's fair to say that without Gutenberg's printing press, what we're about to see happen with Martin Luther would not have happened. So, who was Martin Luther? He also was really just an obscure German monk. He was working as a professor at a small college in a small town. He was born in 1483 in Eisleben. He went to Latin school as a boy, and then in 1497, at the age of 14, he was sent to a more advanced school that was run by a group of monks. Now, this particular order of monks was very focused on personal piety. That is, they cared more about a person's behavior and character than they did about the doctrines and practices of the church. This apparently had a very big influence on young Martin. In 1501, he went to the University of Erfurt, which was one of the most prestigious in Germany at the time. Now, just for reference, we're now at the beginning of the 1500s which we've already talked about because right at the same time, the Spanish and the Portuguese were very, very busy discovering new worlds. And also, for reference, we're past the invention of the printing press, which was back in the 1450s. So by the time that Luther was in university, the printing press had already spread all over Germany, and there was an explosion of books and learning. Luther spent five years at the university, 
coming out with a master's degree and being influenced, in his own words, by Aristotle and William of Ockham. Ockham, by the way, is the person credited with the idea of Ockham's razor. That's the idea that the best answer is usually the simplest one. Ockham was also an important scholar in other ways as well. After university, Luther joined a group of Augustinian monks. Apparently, Luther had been at one point in a violent thunderstorm, and during the thunderstorm, he vowed to become a monk if he survived. And of course, he did survive, and then he joined the order, which was a mendicant order. A mendicant order means that they believed in poverty and that the monks themselves did not own anything of their own. They also vowed to never marry. Joining this order of monks also explains the odd halo hairstyle that you see in early pictures of Luther. Luther's time as a monk and his experience as a schoolboy with the other group of monks influenced him for the rest of his life. Luther was transferred to the Augustinian convent in Wittenberg in 1508, and he continued his studies at the university there, eventually getting the equivalent of today's doctoral degree. In 1511, he was sent with some other German monks to Rome to petition the Pope to recognize their orders. Now, this would be a seminal event in Luther's life. Luther found Rome to be completely lacking in true spirituality, the kind that the monks had fostered in him. And he found that the organization of the church was greedy, pompous, and corrupt. He was, overall, appalled. By 1512, though, he was back in Wittenberg, and he began teaching at the university. He taught classes on theology and on certain books of the Bible, including the Psalms and, importantly, Paul's letter to the Romans. This was also to have a very big influence on his thinking. And did you know that before he published the 95 Theses, Luther also published the 97 Theses? This was a different list, a list of disputations against scholastic theology, and it never had quite the impact that the 95 Theses did. It was kind of forgotten. Then, in 1517, Johann Tetzel came to Wittenberg. Tetzel was a Dominican monk, so a different order of monks than Luther, and the Dominicans were not so committed to poverty. Tetzel came and he preached in Wittenberg, and one of his common themes was that by buying indulgences, people could be forgiven of their sins. Now there's a backstory to Tetzel's sales spree, of course. The Roman church was trying to raise funds to rebuild and expand St. Peter's Basilica, but there was also a secret agreement that half of the indulgences raised in Germany would go to pay off the debt that the Archbishop of Mainz, the highest-ranking Catholic official in Germany, he had incurred these debts when he borrowed money to pay off the Pope to give him the role of Archbishop. Corruption, right? You can see it right there. So the Archbishop empowered Tetzel and others to sell indulgences to make money so he could pay back his loans. But in selling indulgences, Tetzel wasn't just making money for the Archbishop of Mainz. Tetzel was also claiming a little bit more than he was authorized to claim. He wasn't just saying that people could get out of purgatory. Tetzel was saying that the church actually had the power to forgive people's sin. Now, this rather infuriated Luther. So he got out his pen and he wrote out a list of criticisms of Tetzel and of the church. He made two copies. 
one copy he sent to the Archbishop of Mainz, who was Tetzel's supervisor. Luther did not know about the secret deal to pay back the Archbishop's debt. And this letter that he writes to the Archbishop comes back to bite Luther because the Archbishop of Mainz mailed that copy on to Rome. The other copy, though, Luther took and he nailed to the door of the university there in Wittenberg. That was on October 31st, 1517. In one way, it was a very, very minor event. People nailed things to the door of the university all the time. It was kind of the 1517 equivalent of a blog or a podcast episode. It was a way of inviting people to discuss and debate the ideas. There were probably a bunch of other things nailed up there as well at the same time. It was essentially a kind of a big bulletin board. It was no big deal in a way, just another minor professor saying, hey, here's some things that we should talk about. But in another way, it was a huge thing. Something about Luther's theses resonated with many people in Wittenberg, and soon copies of it were being printed and distributed all around Germany. Now, this is why I said without Gutenberg, there might not be a Luther. The 95 theses could be printed on one sheet of paper. Now, granted, it was kind of a long sheet, and then hung up like a poster. Soon, they were all over Germany, and people were debating them. It might be the very first example of something going viral. So what did Luther say that was so explosive? He said that Tetzel was a cotton-headed ninny-muggins. No, his points were about what Tetzel was saying and the corruption of the church. The theses are each just one sentence or two sentences long. They basically build a case that the Pope is only offering indulgences out of greed. So point by point, using ideas from the Bible, Luther builds a case. Each one point was one of the theses. The idea was that if you were arguing with his ideas that were there in the 95 theses, you could sort of take exception to any one of the points and say, hey, you know, Luther, I disagree with you about point number 17 or whatever. Point one starts with this. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, in Matthew 4, 17, he willed that the entire life of believers was to be one of repentance. And from there, Luther contrasts true repentance with greed. Again, a contrast between the beliefs of the orders of monks that he had grown up with and the experience he had in the Catholic Church. So his ideas steadily build up to the idea that the Pope and the leaders of the Church are acting only out of greed. Here's a few other highlights. Thesis number 52. It is vain to trust in salvation by indulgence letters, even though the indulgence commissary or even the Pope himself were to offer his soul as security. Or thesis number 76. We say, on the contrary, that papal indulgences cannot remove the very least of venial sins as far as guilt is concerned. And then thesis number 82. Why does not the Pope empty purgatory for the sake of holy love and the dire need of the souls that are there if he redeems an infinite number of souls for the sake of just miserable money with which to build a church? The former reason would be most just. The latter is most trivial. And that's the core of it right there. The core of the 95 Theses is Theses point number 82. If the Pope does indeed have the power to redeem souls out of purgatory, 
Why does he do it only for money? Why not, you know, just do it? Why not redeem everyone out of purgatory because of love for those people? That seems to be the thing that the Pope ought to be motivated by, right? He's the Pope. He's the head of the church. In the course of building up to that point, though, Luther also challenged the power and the credibility of the Pope and the entire church in several other places. It's pretty clear, even from a quick read of the 95 Theses, that Luther has made a very clear case that the church is corrupt. And this is what really caught people's attention. Luther had clearly stated something that a whole lot of people had already been feeling, and now they had a sort of bulletproof argument to back themselves up. Copies of the 95 Theses were quickly printed and distributed to other cities, and then more copies printed in those cities, and pretty soon, all over Germany and Central Europe, people were talking about Luther and what he said. That lit a fire which, in a way, has yet to be extinguished. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, did not agree with Luther's positions, and several times he was summoned to Rome to defend himself, which he did. Eventually, in 1521, he was excommunicated. He was then tried in a court in Germany and asked to recant, or in other words, to say he no longer believed in his teachings. But instead, he said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. The court convicted him of heresy and sentenced him to be executed. But he was rescued by Prince Frederick of Germany, who saw in Luther a way to distance himself from the power of the Pope. Prince Frederick hid Luther in a castle in the town of Wartburg. And while he was living there in the castle, kind of sequestered from the rest of the world, Luther wrote some of his most famous works, including a translation of the New Testament from Greek into German. He also wrote important works about faith and theology. Luther's main ideas came to be remembered in five Latin phrases that Luther used. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gracia, Sola Fide, Sola Christus, and Sola Deo Gloria. In English, these are only Scripture, only Grace, only faith, only Christ, and only for God's glory. Luther was saying that the church and Christians should only be guided by Scripture, not by the traditions of the church, and that we are saved only by God's grace, not by indulgences, and the only proper response was faith, not works. Also, he was saying that grace came only through Christ, not through the church. And it was all done for God's glory, not for the glory of men. Now, these five ideas become the core of the Reformation. They were all, really, each one of them, a counter to some specific idea within the Catholic Church of the day. For example, sola scriptura, or only scripture. The core of this idea was that only the Bible should be the guide for each person and for the church, instead of the Catholic idea of the time that the church's doctrines and pronouncements took precedent even over the Bible. 
In the Bible, you can't find any references to indulgences, for example, but the church of the day thought that they could be granted, or at least bought. Luther and the Reformers were saying that the church could not say something like that because there's nothing about it in the Bible, right? The church can't just make stuff up. Or as another example, only grace, which meant that it was only by God's grace that people were saved, not by the decisions of the church. The church couldn't grant salvation. The church couldn't forgive your sins. Only God could do that. All of these solas became the core ideas that become the Reformation. And all of the subsequent reformers built on these ideas, and most of them referred to them, to Luther's ideas, directly and with great admiration. These ideas marked a very substantial change in the way that people were seeing the world. Not just how people were seeing the church, but how they saw the world. The reformers began to say that only the Bible held the way to God, and that each person was responsible before God, and that each person could go to God individually without having to go through the church. This was a major change of worldview, and it led further to the idea of personal and individual responsibility and freedom, and to the idea that it was up to individuals to group together and create their own government, rather than submit to the powers that be who try to rule them from afar. These ideas led to an explosion of all types of scholarship as many parts of Northern Europe separated themselves from the ideological and political control of Rome. So let's go back to Luther. After he escaped Rome, he lived for a while in the castle in Wartburg, and eventually he was asked by Prince Frederick to help move all of the churches of Germany out of the control of the Roman church. The German churches retained many of the rituals and structures of the Roman church, but they began adopting the theology of Luther. And many of the things that Luther thought went against the five solas were removed from the practices and the teachings and the rituals of the German churches. The German churches, for this reason, eventually came to be known as the Lutheran church. One of the practices that the German Lutheran churches got rid of pretty quickly was the requirement that priests could not get married. Now, this might have been in part because in June of 1525, Martin Luther himself married an ex-nun, whose name was Katharina von Bora. He had helped her escape from a Catholic convent two years earlier. Luther spent the next years writing and preaching, and he wrote a good many theological books, which influenced the later reformers. He published the German version of the New Testament in 1522 and then the German version of the whole Bible in 1534. He also wrote a bunch of hymns, most of which were fairly simple and easy to sing so that they could be sung by anyone, including A Mighty Fortress is Our God, whose tune comes apparently from an old German drinking song that was sung in the pubs. He also wrote several catechisms, which are question and answer discussions to teach new believers about Christianity. Luther died on the 18th of February, 1546. At that point, the churches of Germany were independent of Rome, and many other churches across northern and central Europe followed. This movement away from the central control of Rome came to be known, as we've said, as the Reformation, even though it was more about leaving the church than reforming it. But in a very substantial way, the church overall was reformed into new forms of church. So I guess the word reformation still kind of fits.
As I said before, the printing press led to Luther. Luther led to the Reformation, the Reformation led to the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment led to the American Revolution and all the other revolutions that followed it. It's hard to imagine the American Revolution happening and the U.S. Declaration of Independence, or the Constitution, happening without Luther nailing his 95 theses to the door. We're going to talk about all those other reformers and the Enlightenment and revolutions in upcoming episodes, but first, I want to take a quick detour into some theology. And by that, I mean a detour into the depths of hell. 